0: I say that democracy is a precious thing, that our rights and freedoms were not given to us as acts of generosity or goodwill by those with power, but won through the struggle and sacrifice of people throughout history. Now, the reason it's important to talk about this is, let me talk about our rights and freedoms and how they were won, because the, we, we don't talk about that enough. And the, the problem with not talking about them enough is we forget how they won in the first place. And that makes it easier for our rights and freedoms to be repealed, often silently, by those with power. Now, the Conservative government has waged a ceaseless war against our rights and freedoms. They've introduced legislation which has repealed the right to protest in this country. You might expect that from an authoritarian government. You might expect that from authoritarian Conservative government when Suella Braverman, after all, is the home secretary. What you might simply take for granted is that if the Labour Party has the ability to stop an authoritarian Conservative government introducing a tax on a right to protest, then they may actually use that power. I'm afraid to say that's not what happened. Yesterday in the House of Lords, as the government were ramming through, and we'll talk about ramming through, because this is quite an important point, ramming through a tax on our rights to protest, the Labour Party had a chance via... a a motion which was tabled by the Green Lord, Jenny Jones, to stop another attack on our rights to protest. They did not do so and it has passed. Now, we'll talk about this in terms of their excuses and all the rest of it because I think it's important to talk about. Welcome to the show, by the way. We will be talking later about the Grenfell Tower disaster six years on and has anything been learned, has anything changed and all the rest of it, which is extremely important to talk about the horror of that day is something which I think many of us will always remember for the rest of our lives, at least 72 who died in horrific circumstances and it reveals so much about our broken social um, and economic order, so it's very important that we talk about it because the attempt to brush it under the carpet I think is itself revealing. Um, Do like and subscribe, Um, you can support us on Super Chat, I will read out everyone at the end who does Super Chats and I will put the Super Chats to our guests. And um, now we do, we're very lucky to have Lord Pre- uh, Baron. Sorry, get it right. Get the system, get the honour system right. Yeah. Baron Premseeker. Baron uh, Premseeker is a brilliant um, professor, academic on accounting. You often, many of you heard him talking about issues to do with accounting or, or with economics, with tax, that kind of thing. And um, he's a super brain, but he's also a very principled and courageous man who offered leadership yesterday because 10 Labour lords rebelled against Labour sitting on their hands, and one of them was Prem Seeker. Great to see you, Prem, how are you doing?
1: I'm very well, and good afternoon to you, Owen, and by the way, uh, don't call me Baron or Lord, just Prem Sika will do. Sorry,
0: I I wouldn't have done, it's just because we were talking about the House of Lords, so I was trying to just make it clear you are a Labour rebel, but you're right, you are very much not uh, defined by being in the House of Lords, I should make that very clear. Prem, I just want to put this little speech by the, uh, uh, this is the Labour, which, what, we'll, I'll just put this, This is the, who was the Labour Lord who did the speech? I should have checked this. That's we'll just me, see- Vernon Coker. That's right, Vernon Coker. Let's just hear from Vernon yeah. Coker. He used to be a home, min- I think he was actually in the last Labour government in the yeah. Home Office. Let's just hear yeah. his excuses and I want to hear what you, what you say.
2: We will abstain, as I say, on the fatal motion. We will not uh, uh, block this legislation. So let me be clear to those who keep asking me whether the official Labour position, His Majesty's Opposition position, is to block the bill. We will not do that. I understand why some people would wish uh, that to be otherwise, but as His Majesty's opposition, we will respect convention. We will respect tradition. We will respect the right way of doing uh, politics in our country and I don't believe that it necessarily shows any respect for the way that democracy votes by voting down the uh, uh, the opinion of the elected government of the way of the day the way to change that is in my view to at the next election to get rid of this government and put another government in its place that is the way forward we've app- Now can we just
0: explain quickly what exactly was what did the government try to ram through and how did they do it? This is very important. So what were we actually talking about with this Tory legislation?
1: Yeah, well, let's just go back to earlier this year, uh, the public order bill, which became act just before the King's coronation was going through Parliament. And it had already been passed by the Commons. It came to the Lords. And at that point, the government decided to bring, uh, bring an amendment and that is the amendment which is really the contentious issue here which again they brought back in a different way yesterday they brought that amendment to the lords and it was defeated so what they were trying to do was lower the threshold for what they might call a minor uh, more than minor hindrance uh and uh, they wanted to apply that to protests and assemblies which means that the threshold at which the police could refuse uh protests and assemblies would be much much lower so that was thrown out by the lords so before even the bill had received the royal assent the government indicated that it wanted to change now the proper thing to do would have been to bring another bill which meant that they would have a, ha, would have needed to consult various parties, including general public, perhaps uh, various NGOs and other organisations. But they actually did not do that. So they brought this uh, statutory instrument. Now, statutory uh, they didn't bring a bill. They actually brought a statutory instrument. Now, things with statutory instruments is that they're really a bad way of making legislation. They generally clarify uh, the laws. They do not create any new primary laws. So what this statutory instrument, which was brought to the Lords yesterday, it created primary legislation. Indeed, it brought back the very amendment which had been thrown out by the Lords. And the Constitutional Convention is that if an amendment or a bill is introduced in a House first, in this case, in the Lords first, and lords that thrown it out, it could not be taken to the Commons, because in a legal sense, it doesn't really exist. So they basically brought in that rejected amendment through the back door of a statutory instrument. Now, statutory instruments can't be amended uh, in Parliament, because that is the way the whole system works and they tried to, they basically rammed it through. Now, Labour's position on it is quite interesting. Uh, In the Commons, they actually opposed this statutory instrument, knowing that they would actually lose the vote because of massive uh, government uh, majority. So they could turn around and say to the people, yep, we oppose this legislation. But when it came to the Lords, they said they would not oppose it and they simply wanted to table what they call a regret motion, which is saying, tut, 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 we are not happy about it. But the the amendment, uh, the statutory instrument, or change to the law, went through. Now, the government normally issues uh, what they call explanatory notes, uh, accompanying bills and statutory instruments. But in this case, the accompanying notes or the explanatory notes did not say that this is the same amendment which had previously been rejected. Uh, so they were trying to underplay that. But anybody knowing anything about what had happened on this bill straight away twigged it. There was no prior consultation with the parties who may be affected, whether it is Amnesty or Liberty or Just Oil or anybody else. And uh, so, so, so basically, it was a travesty of procedures and processes. So the House of Lords basically had two choices. One was Labour's to say, yep, we will say we are not happy and push through it. The other one was to say, hang on, uh, you are violating the constitutional understandings. This is not right. We can't let this through. If you really want to uh, uh, rush with it, what you've got to do is create a bill. Bring forward a bill after proper consultations. And then it would also be open to parliamentary select committees to take evidence from the appropriate parties as to w- what they you know, uh, uh, think of the bill. But the government did not want to do that. So Labour chose to simply let it through. Uh, Jenny Jones tabled what they call a fatal motion, as the name suggests, that would really kill this statutory instrument. Even if that motion had been passed, uh, government could still introduce a bill to contain, uh, containing exactly the same offending uh, clause. Uh, but uh, the fatal motion, to my mind, wasn't really an issue of principle, not only a constitutional issue. We can't let the government basically abolish the right to protest, which is fundamental to any democratic renewal and fundamental to securing change. That is the only way people's voices are heard. So uh, I and uh, some others decided that we would uh, violate the three-line whip and we would vote with our conscience and we will do what we think is right for the people. So that is really the background, Owen.
0: So the Shadow Health Secretary was tweeting: tweeted, an unelected House of Lords can't block an elected House of Commons if you don't want Tory laws to go through Parliament, elect a Labour government. I'll come on to the second part of that actually shortly. But in terms of process, you responded... Lords voted 148 and 44 to 60. Uh, sorry, no, you. This was sorry. This was you earlier making yeah. the point about how you voted down this. And, and, and you you were, even though you were told to vote to abstain on Jenny Jones's motion, you voted for it. We have a police state, but you also responded to where Streeting, treating, saying your statement is incorrect. The Parliament Acts of 1911 and 1949, that one, the last one, was obviously passed by the Clement Attlee's Labour government. Yeah. Curb power of the Lords to block bills only. Last night, Lords were discussing a statutory instrument, not a bill. Government used SI, statutory instrument, to enact primary legislation on unprecedented act, And you have a link which just goes through the constitutional process, which I'm yeah. not convinced where streeting is perhaps okay with. Carol Vordman is amongst those who shared what you wrote. <laughs> Carol Vordman has kind of become a, a reinvented um, anti-Tory warrior. Lord Premsey, uh, putting the record straight to West Streeting, last night's debate was about freedom of speech and also how government uses statutory instruments to enact climate legislation, which has not been done before. Fundamentally, it means the minister can now more or less decide on new law without recourse to Parliament. 4,000 pieces of EU law will go this way if something isn't done. And um, Labour did themselves no favours last night at all.
1: I think she's right. And what she's saying is that the EU retained reform law will enable the ministers unilaterally uh, through a statutory instrument to repeal things like paid holidays, equal pay, maternity rights, food standards, environmental laws, and there is nothing that parliament would be able to do anything about it other than stand up and say, we will table a regret motion. That just means that the whole thing really goes through. So, so, So the real problem is that There is an increasing use of what they call Henry VIII powers, which are powers granted by the main legislation to ministers to change laws. But the historical understanding is that those changes are minor detail, not something major, about whether you will get paid for your holidays and whether you will get equal pay and whether you'll be able to... Uh, Whether you you can uh, say, well, we don't in this country want chlorinated chicken or beef full of hormones. All those powers basically are centralized now in the hands of the minister. And uh, our constitutional system is broken. Our system of government is broken. And uh, all this has happened uh, in a while. People are looking at what this government is doing. So our parliamentary system is not really working very well.
0: I mean, the the second part, which is what I was going to object to as well, of what West Streeting wrote, which is if you don't like these Tory laws, then you need a Labour government elected in the House of Commons. I mean, the problem with that logic or that argument is Labour haven't committed to repealing this law. In fact, Keir Starmer publicly said that they wouldn't be repealing this law. So it's not exactly as though, well... You might be gutted that we didn't stop this in the House of Lords. Here's our reason why. Democratic supremacy of the House of Commons over the House of Lords. But don't you worry. If you elect us, we'll simply fix the problem. But they're not committed to doing that. So what actually happened last night, as things stand, was a latch-ditched attempt to save rights and freedoms which neither of the main parties is committing to retaining. That's the problem.
1: Yeah, I think you're right, and that is a matter of concern, whether Labour's reluctance is permanent or temporary, but like here Starmer's leadership pledges, uh, is, is hard to say. But ultimately, people have the power, really, to change things. All the rights that we have taken for granted so far have been won by creating pressure in the streets and uh, at, at the grassroots. I mean, our parliamentary system generally tries to enforce a status quo. It does not really give people rights until uh, it is felt that things have got so far that they threaten the privileges of the elites. Uh, that was the case, for example, in the struggle over women's rights, gay rights. That was the resi- You know that that was visible when people demanded equality, uh, racial equality, gender equality. That is what happened when women at Dagenham campaigned to get equal pay, Or so our history is littered with examples where Parliament resists giving people rights and is ultimately forced to make some concessions. Again, I use the word concessions because those concession, uh, concession means something can be withdrawn. And that is what we are witnessing now, that the rights which have been secured after decades and decades of struggles are just sort of being extinguished. So what we need is permanent emancipatory change, and people have the power, whether they take to the streets, whether they write to MPs, whether they use oratory, music, theatre, songs, write leaflets, or appear on a show like this. You know. So people have many means of ensuring that we remain a free and progressive society,
0: and that is what people need to do. And just finally, Prem, since I've got you here, given you, you're an accountant and very fl- extreme, one of our most fluent and articulate um, commentators, and all things to do with taxes and so on, just very quickly, what, where do you think we're at in terms of Labour tax? How hopeful are you in terms of a, a next Labour government?
1: I think on many issues, there is little to choose between uh, Labour and the uh, Tory, to be honest. Uh, Labour has said it doesn't really want to uh, borrow a great deal, which is kind of interesting, because if you look at the post-war economy, the Attlee government you referred to earlier borrowed up to 250% of GDP in order to lay the foundations of the prosperity that came afterwards. And it seems to me now when Labour is saying, like the Tories, borrowing is bad, now of course we can question uh th- those things uh about what do they mean by borrowing for example our public debt includes about a trillion pound of quantitative easing which is really uh, not really debt in any way whatsoever but even if, even if it was question then is how is it going to build prosperity so labor has uh, ruled out borrowing money It doesn't want to increase the corporation uh, tax rate. It doesn't want to increase the capital gains tax. It does not want to increase the wealth tax. It does not want to levy, indeed, any wealth taxes. So basically, these are the policies of the Conservative Party. And the result is that you find Labour policies don't really stand up to scrutiny. Uh, You can't have £28 billion of a green investment if you're not going to borrow, it. not going to Uh, raise taxes from some sections of our society. You can't redistribute uh, income and wealth uh, if you're not going to use tax as an instrument for that. So I think in the last couple of weeks, we've seen Labour policies have have unraveled and Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves has said, oh, well, we didn't really mean starting with 28 billion if we come to office. It would be halfway through uh, that term in Parliament which really means is that the claims they have made about giving the country clean energy uh, are not, no longer really valid. Claims about creating jobs in the Midlands and the Northeast, claims about uh, investing to rebuild the economy, many of those things are really questionable. So basically, they are developing policies which don't really stand up to scrutiny, and the main reason is that uh, they have basically silenced dissent. Uh, anyone who disagrees with the leadership soon finds that perhaps their whip is withdrawn might happen to me as well uh or perhaps they are deselected if they are in the commons or perhaps they are just uh expelled Mm -hmm. from the party and that means you end up creating policy in an echo chamber whereas really if you want good policies you need to have a pluralist platform. You need to bring the critics in mm-hmm. so that you can ask the most awkward questions. And that is what happened when I was working with John McDonnell and Jeremy Corbyn some years ago. And when we, you know, I helped them to develop policies and we had groups And uh, those groups uh, which I formed included people from different political backgrounds, some from business, some from the academy, some from the world of uh, law and other areas, so that we could knock knock about ideas and see that eventually what we come up with would would be robust and would be deliverable. But at the moment, policies just fall to the wayside. It is not just about tax. You look at the labour U-turn, for example, on uh, tuition fees. And now they're suddenly talking about childcare policies being reversed as well. But they've been looking at it for three years. What did they actually do in those three years? Mm-hmm. So maybe rest uh, I will try to write about soon.
0: damning uh, summary, but uh, nonetheless a fair and accurate one. Prem, I have to say, given given the fact you are one of the leading experts in the entire country on issues of tax, the fact that they're not listening to your own prescriptions, I think is itself revealing. But honestly, such an honour to have you. Again, thank you for being one of the few Labour lords who actually stood your ground and offered leadership against Tory attacks and our rights and freedoms. And it was great to have you speak to us today. So thank you so much. And I hope to speak to you soon.
1: Thank you, Owen. Pleasure
0: to speak to you. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. bye-bye. Take care, bye. bye Um, great stuff there from 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 Prem as always. Um, we've got um just quickly before I talk about our next subject, uh, just some of the comments coming in. David Barato, the line between Labour and the choices eroded. what hope is there in a Labour government? How do we defeat the right wing neoliberals that run Labour? Should they win? It's a very good point. It's certainly going to have massive fights, in our battle when, uh, yeah, fights on our hands when uh, Labour are likely to win the next election because of Tory self-immolation. Um, Tad canwell uh, it seems to me uh, since Brexit, the parliamentary norms have been seriously eroded and won't stop until it breaks the and um, It has to be fixed. Yeah, and I think there's a strong argument since that actually, you've seen an erosion of parliamentary norms. New Labour has to say, be part of that um, as well. People say we have an elected dictatorship. Um, it's interesting how all the systems where you have a single chamber like New Zealand have better checks and balances than the one we have where we have two chambers. Um, uh, David McGuinness, uh, Starmer is the new bojo, a compulsive liar. Well, we're not allowed to say that, are we, David? Because we're allowed to say that Boris Johnson is a liar, which he is, clearly. He lies as easily as he breeze. But um, it's not the same when Keir Starmer lies. And um, we're not allowed to say that um, because sensible, moderate Liberal people, as they describe themselves, have decided that lying only matters when the Conservative Party does it, and it's absolutely fine when the Labour Party do it, so we're not actually allowed to talk about it, I'm afraid. And given how authoritarian the Labour government are, they'll probably just ban us from talking about it when they come to power.
2: that's BetterHelp. H E L P.
0: Anyway, anyway, that's quite enough of that. Now I'm going to just bring in our next guest. It is now six years since that horrible day in June uh, 2017, when at least 72 people died in Grenfell Tower in West London. Overwhelmingly, working-class people, people of colour, often migrants. It really was a story, which a horrific story, which revealed so much about our society, about the housing crisis, about how working class people are ignored, about how basic regulations to protect people have been stripped away in the name of neoliberalism. There's so much we can say about it, and it was, um, you know, a day that many people have remembered. Those 72. There's a march taking place. I know at the moment, I think, or at six o'clock in West London to commemorate those. Uh, who died on that absolutely uh, tragic day? Now I'm going to bring in uh, Peter Apps. Peter is um, a brilliant writer on, for one thing, the Grenfell Tower fire. He wrote "Show Me uh, the Bodies," which I do recommend. Everyone gets a copy of. Um, Peter, it's such an honour to have you. How are you doing?
4: Um, well, good thanks, I mean, and thanks, thanks for the invite. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Thanks. It's such short notice, honestly. Really, really, really appreciate it. think just six years on, because, you know, there are lots of politicians and people of all stripes who will talk about the tragedy of Grenfell Tower and obviously the human disaster, the scale of, the, of, of 72 people at least that we know of who died that day. But what, just more broadly, what did that specific disaster tell us about, for example... The nature of a housing crisis in britain because it was a very extreme and horrific example but it said something much wider and i just wondered if you could just you know what the kind of key lessons that's so important that we always remember about that
4: yeah i mean there's a lot that you could draw out i think um there were so many different things that went into making that disaster possible um but just to kind of pick up a couple um one of the things that a lot of people remember about the the um Fourteenth of June, twenty seventeen, is is reading a blog written by the residents, um, particularly a guy called Eddie Defon and his his, his neighbour Francis, which had effectively predicted a uh, disaster of some sort at the tower because they knew it wasn't being looked after properly. And what's emerged in the years since is is their regular they and others as well within within the town within the community the the, the regular really. Um, Consistent attempts to try and get their landlords, the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea, to take their complaints seriously. But the fact that they had no power, no standing in that system in order to really get them to listen. Um, and I think that that's something that's reflected in other social housing blogs where there's maybe not as serious issues as Grenfell Tower, but there are really serious issues with disrepair is that people know about that. They know that it needs to be fixed. They probably have some idea of how to fix it, but they have no power to make their landlord act. Um, and unfortunately, six years on, that's that's very much still the case. Um, I think also that, that just a simple simple question of funding. I mean, the, the 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 one of the everyone obviously knows about the cladding at Grenfell Tower, but one of the other major issues was the fact that the fire doors didn't self close, um, or too many of them didn't self close. So that the, the smoke um, spread very quickly into the stairs and, and stopped people escaping. And it's it's come out since that the, the London Fire Brigade had warned the council that there were. Self closing devices missing, not just in Grenfell, but in, in other tower blocks in in the borough, and a program of five hundred thousand pounds, which in the context of a, a a borough's housing budget isn't a huge amount of money, was just deemed too expensive, and so that those repairs, even though they were always life safety critical repairs, weren't done. Um, and again, that 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 tells us something about the 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 way we build um, social housing projects, social housing. Um, estates in in the years after the Second World War, um, but then just haven't invested money in um, their upkeep, and therefore have allowed them to become places that uh, suffer from disrepair and, and and at times even are unsafe. Um, that's been a choice, and it's been a choice about where where budgets go and, and and where priorities are.
0: Could you tell us where things are at in terms of the fam- those who survived the survivors of Grenfell Tower, where we're at with? with where many of those those survivors who obviously went through an unbelievable trauma where where things stand 6 years on
4: well um you know you, you mentioned uh, I'm going to be joining the silent walk in in about half an hour um the anniversary is a really difficult time i think for 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 anyone connected to this disaster and i think particularly this year it feels like it's been such a long time um And so little has changed. I think many of the things that I wrote last year and the year before about how there hasn't been enough progress removing cladding from other buildings, we haven't fitted sprinklers, we haven't worked out evacuation plans, we haven't implemented the recommendations from the first phase of the inquiry yet, are all just still true. A year has passed and and none of those things have got any better. Um, And what's particularly difficult for the community is an enormous amount of evidence has now come out about the the organisations and the people that were responsible for what happened to them. The the, the inquiry, even before its report has come out, has concluded that every single death in the tower was, in the words of the, 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 the inquiry's barrister, entirely avoidable. Um, And yet we're still waiting for any semblance of justice any any arrests, any charges. And the community know that they're going to have to keep waiting for longer for that. And I think that makes any idea about recovery, about moving on, about um, even grieving really hard because they they, they feel like there is no closure until they start to see justice. And six years and counting is a very, very long time to wait.
0: And can I ask just in terms of where things stand with the inquest itself now um, and what, I mean, in terms of the prospects of, of justice, how, you know, is there any reason to have any hope or confidence that there could be, for example, charges?
4: So uh, the, the inquiry has closed its oral evidence. There were closing statements, I think, in November last year. Um, they're now in the process of writing their final report. And they've indicated that that will come out in the early part of 2024. Um, Separate to the inquiry process, there's there's actually quite a large metropolitan police investigation, um, which has been running in parallel, um, has been pretty well funded and has gathered an awful lot of evidence and has interviewed people under caution and has clearly... Because we know what evidence they have, because a lot of it's been disclosed by the inquiry, has an enormous amount of evidence with which to make criminal prosecutions stand up. The the position that they're going to take is they're going to wait until the inquiry report comes out. They're going to review that report against their own evidence. And then potentially they're going to bring charges to the CPS. I would be surprised. um, I mean, devastated, as many other people in the community would be. But I would be surprised. if there weren't charges, I think the question is: Do you get enough people? Do you get the right people? Do you get them for the right things? And then, do you are they robust enough that they um, uh, manage to stick while, as the kind of difficult legal process develops? Um, but I, I, I would, I, I would, if if, the, if nobody is charged for this, then something has gone desperately wrong because. Um, the, the evidence is 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 not only clear it's 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 in the public domain now
0: um, in terms of just you know housing i mean you're you you're, you're inside housing which is is the definitive publication that comes to all things to do with the, with with housing in Britain is there any sense of optimism of things changing in terms of where i mean because we have a very acute housing crisis but in terms of the lessons of how this disaster unfolded has there been any meaningful changes and any, any prospects of that? I mean, obviously we've got a conservative government. Do you see anything from from Labour in terms of what they're offering, which which meets some of the demands that have arisen from this disaster?
4: Specifically about Grenfell um, and the, the sort of building safety crisis which has emerged in the in the years um, since, um, there's 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 bits. There are bits. It would be wrong to say that nothing's happened. Um, there, there was it was a bit, almost everything came with a fight. Everything came with people having to push and 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 argue and lobby for, for, for the small bits of change that we have seen. Um there's been some progress getting cladding off buildings, not enough. It's not fast enough, there's still too many out there, but some buildings have had recladding work done and that's ended up being paid for um it, through through um, central government money in some instances. Is some some steps towards getting developers who who, who built these buildings to pay for um pay for the work to fix them. Um, there is now, and it took, this took an awful long time and a lot of effort from um, bereaved and survivors to lobby for. But there is some uh, better regulation of social housing providers, and if they if they're um failing, they can be held to account in ways which they didn't used to. Thanks to some laws which only came into force a couple of months ago. Um, but fundamentally, the, 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 the conditions which which allowed Grenfell to happen um, still exist in other buildings around the country. Um, residents still have very little um, voice, very little power, and I, I, I don't know what the the the, the Labour Party the the um, uh, Keir Starmer's Labour Party's position really is on building safety. Um, they made a big promise about building more social housing at the, the last party conference, but have gone quite quiet on that since they've talked quite a lot about mortgage guarantee schemes and changes to the planning process. But when they talk about housing now, social housing doesn't seem to feature so much, and building safety certainly doesn't. Um, so I'd like, I, you know, I saw I saw Keir Starmer and other members of the party today tweeting their um their you know, messages of goodwill towards the the, the, the community um, and people who've suffered, but I think that people would probably rather hear that they were putting money into sprinklers and they were going to get cladding off and they were going to make sure that organisations that are told it would pay for it and that sort of thing. Um, so it's, it's we'll see, I think. I think it's, it has been possible at times to put pressure on governments in order to get action. and arguably that would be more true of a Labour government because of the people who vote Labour and the, the, the um, areas that they would represent and um, probably have more people who are affected by these issues and therefore they'd be more vulnerable to that pressure. Um, and that's probably the best reason to be optimistic that they might do something on it.
0: Pete, I really appreciate you taking the time. It's such a short notice to have a chat with us. Um, do make sure you'll get a copy of his book, uh, Show Me The Bodies, which is extremely has been very extremely well-received. Um, I know you're going to join now the vigil, um, or the the walk, it's it's the walk, isn't it? Um, Silent walk, yeah. Silent walk, um, six years on. Uh, It's obviously short notice for those who aren't near West London, but that is going to be taking place to remember those uh, who, who died and to make sure that the legacy of obviously a horrific tragedy is that things have to change. Um, And that will only come through collective pressure. And again, listening to the voices of those affected. But Peter, honestly, really, really appreciate it. And um, yeah, speak soon. Take care.
4: Thanks for the invite. Cheers. Take care.
0: Uh, Brilliant stuff. And I'm sure, you know, all of us remember that day, um, that day back in June, I remember getting the notification of of what had happened and the the utter horror Um, and the way that that community was devastated and again, you know, that that point about how working class people are ignored in our society because the Grenfell Tower community warned exactly what would happen. It wasn't a disaster which came out of nowhere. They warned what happened, but they were listened to because working class people are ignored and demonized and marginalized in our society. And the consequences in part of that were fatal. And, you know, Friedrich Engels spoke of uh, Friedrich Engels, who, of course, was um the associate of Karl Marx, uh, a writer in his own right. Um, he wrote of something called social murder, uh, which I've written about before myself, uh, quoting um, Glenfield Tower. Um, if i trying to just bring it up, actually, see if I can quote him directly. Um, he said, if an individual injures a fellow human being and causes death, that was manslaughter. When the assailant knew in advance, uh, that the injury uh, would be fatal, we call his deed murder. So why was it different, he was asking, when society places working-class citizens in such a position that they suffer too early an unnatural death by imposing conditions on them in which it knew death was the inevitable uh, consequence. Um, and I think that point about social murder is not something we should be afraid of talking about, um, not just in the case of what happened there, and others would point to the pandemic um, as well. Um, anyway look I just want to say thanks to Prem and to Peter um, so before I end um, let's try and just talk about something else shall we before we we, we wrap up do you know what? I'm going to do a little tribute to Nadine Dorries, she's hilarious she's funny, makes me laugh um, she, <laughs> she's just chaos, I can't dislike her, I've tried, there's something they camp about her, uh, I think she's one of the campest mainstream politicians um, I've ever come across. Um, Nadine Norris basically is just on the absolute rampage at the moment because she wasn't given, um, she wasn't allowed to join the House of Lords and she's been doing a big thing about how two privileged boys uh, have prevented a working-class woman from going to the House of Lords. It's somewhat aligning over Boris Johnson's own background. She keeps going about how he was a, a scholarship at Eton. He's from a pretty privileged background, I think we'd all um, agree. Anyway, she's now on the just on the absolute rampage. She's refusing uh, to resign her seat, just to just to draw up the pain, draw out the pain uh, for the government. Um, the report into Boris Johnson um, misleading Parliament deliberately um, has been signed off by the Privileges Committee. Now Boris Johnson's gone. Oh, I'm the victim. Oh, they're all out to get me. It's a conspiracy by people who hate Brexiteers. I mean, Rishi Sunak is a Brexiteer, probably more authentic a Brexiteer than Boris Johnson, given Boris Johnson doesn't believe in anything apart from himself, and wrote two columns, one supporting Remain and one supporting Leave. I've made these points before, but it's worth just repeating. Um, and the Privileges Committee, a majority of them are Conservatives. The points that it will make um, is uh, that he claims that he'd been assured that no rules had been broken in the House of Commons, and the evidence suggests that is absolutely not the case. There was no evidence whatsoever that he was ever assured by anyone that those rules were abided by, which is um, uh, obviously self-explanatory. I guess we've now got to the point where you've got a a range of MPs, including Conservative Brexiteers on a committee, who have clearly concluded that he deliberately misled the House of Commons. Um, And you've got Boris Johnson, who's a terminal liar, whose entire career is just defined by dishonesty wretched dishonesty. Um, but it'll be interesting to see exactly what it says, even though I think we've got the gist because he's resigned in a massive huff. because what would have happened is um, he would have had more than 10-day suspension, which would then qualify for a by-election in his constituency, and he is a coward. He's a wimp. Thought he'd lose. Um, so instead, to spare himself the humiliation, he resigned and then tries to frame it as a conspiracy against him by Remainers, even though it is a conservative-dominated committee um, with a conservative government uh, led by Brexiteers. And indeed, what would happen is MPs in a conservative-dominated parliament would have had to vote on the findings. So, you know, there he goes. Um, I I doubt the last we're going to hear from Boris Johnson. The point I would just keep making is... um, I mean, you know, the, the establishment tried to wash the hands of this guy. Who put him there? I mean, it's just, we really do have to keep making this point. All these commentators now and politicians washing their hands of a man they put in power. They did everything they could to make him prime minister and keep him there. Um, he was the perfect representation, really, of a shameless establishment, you know, an You know, where, who just get, think they can get away with anything and do, generally, like the bankers who plunged us into disaster like the tax dodgers, like the rip-off landlords, like the, the poverty-bound boss. You know, society's just run of people taking the mick at the top of society who are used to everything being run in their favour. Um, brats, br- a brattish ruling class. He's a perfect of representat- representationism. Oh, they think he's too vulgar and all the rest of it. But he is just their reflection in a mirror. I mean, David Baratow asked, what do you think of Boris Johnson hairdresser getting OBE? Seems like a punishment. Imagine being known as the person responsible for his hair. It's a fair point. I mean, obviously the one—I mean, there's many things I dislike about Boris Johnson, but one of them is that contrived. But, you know, before he goes on TV, he ruffles up his hair. At least, you know, when I ruffle up my hair, I'm genuinely, genuinely frustrated. I fidget a lot. Um, David Cameron also gave his hairdresser an OBE, so I don't know if it's like a thing conservative prime ministers do. Did Theresa May give her hairdresser an OBE? I don't know. She actually probably had the best hair of all of them. Yeah. Um, yeah, niche topic there, but yes, could, I mean, yeah, I suppose you'd probably be annoyed if you were the hairdresser because he, he I mean, that was part of his image. I think this is worth talking about because he, he had this clearly manufactured image and the likes of Have I Got News For You played such, um, they really did. I know some of you are thinking, oh, you can't blame Have I Got News For You for this. Oh, I can. Oh, no, I can. It's just this kind of like slightly smug, centrist dad kind of TV show really, isn't it? I say that, my parents not centrist dads and they loved it, they used to watch it every week. On a Friday, um, but it's just the way they helped build him up as this kind of amusing entertainer. He could laugh with Boris. You'd call him Boris from then on, wouldn't you? And it was all you know. He ruffles his hair. He's silly. He speaks Latin. Blah, 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 blah. Um, and you know that helped launch his career. You know, it was a reality. T- you know, but it wasn't reality TV. But it's kind of you know that kind of direction. Yeah, and um, and I just think you know the way these. These, the, you know, that's how consent is partly manufactured. You get these odious characters who are partly created by our media organisations who then go, oh, look how awful they are. That's embarrassing, isn't it? Um, Yeah, I think it's... Yeah, people are saying, I blame Have I got these for you too? Um, I mean, whatever. I mean, as long as they had fun, as long as they had a laugh. I mean, I just think... I mean, you know, I just... I, I, there's just a general problem, isn't there, of you know, how politics is sometimes... You know, in, this was the problem with Boris Johnson for years. He was allowed to get away with things other politicians weren't because he was turned into a kind of jovial figure of fun. Uh, oh, look, he's on a tripwire and it's broken. Um, and it all became... You know, you, know, you know, The media just you know, became besotted almost with him, laughing along with him rather than at him. And that's why when Eddie Mayer, do you remember Eddie Mayer when he's standing in for Andrew Marr? He just went him. He went through how he been sacked twice for dishonesty, how he conspired with, or oh, he's on the phone to the, a friend talking about beating up a journalist. You know, and just said you're um, you're a nasty piece of work, aren't you? I mean, it was, so, it was such a shock at the time because it was so out of sync from how much of the media treated him with with uh, with kid gloves. Um, and there we have it. Oh, at least least there weren't any terrible consequences, though. Can you imagine? At least he didn't become prime minister and wreck the country. Um, Another point I just want to just talk about quickly while I'm here, actually, because it has um, annoyed me, Um, is uh, Labour just generally retreating. I think I've already talked about I mean, they've watered down predictably their £28 billion a year green transition fund, which was actually the most exciting thing or only exciting thing. Uh, that they'd offered, and they've sacrificed that on the altar of so-called fiscal credibility, and obviously in sync to um, uh, vested interests who clearly don't want him to do that kind of thing. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, what you know, they were talking about in terms of universal healthcare, or, or the possibility we were talking about universal healthcare, is something which should be an absolute pillar of any decent society and where you know if you look at sweden where you get universal childcare, it means you get far more you know particularly women because it's gender isn't it in terms of unpaid child labor unpaid child labor unpaid labor at home including child raising often disproportionately i mean it does disproportionately fall to women that's changed a bit you've got more involvement of dads but all the research shows women still do the vast majority of that. And it's often women who feel forced to choose between their career and childcare. And in this country, people can spend up to 80% of the take home pay on childcare. I mean, it's obscene, which is not what you get in these in Nordic countries. Um, I can just see here a researcher, um, Associate Professor of Political Science at UCL, Tommy Grady, saying, utterly depressing news and fundamentally bad politics. Universal benefits ensure middle-class support. Means testing this will make it far less popular and vulnerable to cuts from future Tory governments. Labour, once again, failed to think strategically for the long term. And that's the point about means testing, because with means testing, what you get is it's expensive to administer. So you've got to add in the cost of the bureaucracy. It's obviously a very bureaucratic time-consuming policy, uh, um, time-consuming process to apply for. But also the only way of ensuring that everybody who's eligible for particular support gets it is universal benefits. So if you take pension credit, for example, which is means-tested, it's something like a quarter to a third of those who are eligible for it don't get it. And people go well why we give these rich people money they don't need Well, that's why you increase taxes on them don't you it's easy you just increase taxes on richer people um and you know and you know the principle then should be rather than a welfare state which is what we call residualized where you just basically ever more keep state support just for the poorest people is you know someone said that i can't really say that uh, services to the poor poor services Because if you don't get the buy-in of wider sections of society, then those services are allowed to decay and you undermine support for them. And that becomes then easier to demonize them um, and to cut support for them. Whereas if everyone, you know, the idea, the principle should be everyone pays in and everyone gets back. You know, We understand that, don't we, in the healthcare system, don't we? We understand the basis of the healthcare system. We don't go... What we'll do is we'll have a healthcare system which is means-tested, but if you're rich, you'll have to pay for your support. I think we'd understand how disastrous that would be. Suddenly, people are having to go through a bureaucratic process to see if they um, qualify for the National Health Service and what that would do to the NHS. I mean, you can visualise that, I think, quite quickly, can't you? And that's why it's such a problem and it's a disaster. Again, Labour are offering very, very little. And we should be talking about universal services. That's what we should be fighting for. Right, I am going to go and do some more work somewhere else. And um, we've got videos every day, pretty much as per usual. We've got lots of interviews coming up as well. And um, I mean, I mean, I am in Madrid at the moment, not not for, not on holiday, but for personal reasons. Um, no, it is very sunny here, but I think it's very sunny in Britain. Well, it is, isn't it? So you know, don't want to boast too much. Um, But I'm going to be back in Britain next week. Um, But I will look forward to speaking to you all very soon. Do like and subscribe. And I want to say uh, thank you. Oh, Tad Campbell here. Sorry, before I go, would universal housing be cheaper in the long run to the new I just want to actually just quickly just respond to this. Actually, it's very interesting because you've got for those who don't know what we're discussing here, you've got universal basic income where every citizen as birthright basically gets a certain amount of money each month. There's been a, there's there's a pilot testing that in Britain at the moment actually, and then you have the idea of universal services instead, where, every, where you get this kind of um, you could get, for example, universal free broadband, if that's one. So you just have that as you, you say with broadband you need as a citizen. You can't function in modern society without internet. Um and therefore you just provide it for free. And obviously you support it through general taxation and you just make sure that richer people pay more money. Um and there's an argument for providing um I mean one would be to start by you provide Um, A certain amount of public housing for free, um, which I'm sympathetic to. Um, And then you don't um, have a lot, you know, a chunk of society who are struggling paying rent. Um, Yeah, so there's lots of ideas of services of, I mean, you could provide instead of universal basic income. So rather than cash in cash, you get services in kind. Anyway, it's very interesting. Yes, so I just want to say thank you to, uh, to David McGuinness, David Baratta, and Tad Cantwell, as ever. Brilliant stuff. And um, I will be back uh, tomorrow with the video. Um, and we will be live again. I know we're just building this up again. We've only started doing the live shows again um, because of General Chaos, which we're doing every Wednesday at 5 o'clock, which I'm sticking to. So we will rebuild this. So I'll be back next Wednesday at 5 o'clock. Um, Do listen to us on podcast as well. Don't forget that. Do like and subscribe. And if you press subscribe, click on the notification bell so you get um, videos as and when. All right, guys. Lots of love. See you in a bit.